a reading from the book of Genesis. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at each other? Listen, he went on, I have heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we will live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he thought something might happen to him. The sons of Israel were among those who came to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Joseph was in charge of the country. He sold grain to all its peoples. His brothers came down and bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he treated them like strangers, and he spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan to buy food, they replied. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You're spies. You have come to see the weakness of the land. No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food, they said. We are all sons of one man. We are honest. Your servants are not spies. No, he said to them, you have come to see the weakness of the land. But they replied, we, your servants, were 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no longer living. And then Joseph said to them, I have spoken, you are spies. This is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place until your youngest brother comes here. Send one from among you to get your brother. The rest of you will be imprisoned so that your words can be tested to see if they are true. If they are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. So Joseph imprisoned them together for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, I fear God. Do this and you will live. If you are honest... Let one of you be confined to the guardhouse while the rest of you go and take grain to relieve the hunger of your households. Bring your youngest brother to me so that your words can be confirmed. Then you won't die. And they consented to this. Then they said to each other, Obviously, we are being punished for what we did to our brother. We saw his deep distress when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. That's why this trouble has come upon us. But Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to harm the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must account for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph understood them, since there was an interpreter between them. He turned away from them and wept. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. For those who are visiting, again, a warm welcome. My name is Paul. I'm the senior pastor here. It's a joy to gather with you today. Before we dive into Genesis 42, would you bow your heads with me as I share another brief word of prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. And in the oldest prayer of the church, we pray, come, Holy Spirit, come in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'd like to begin by asking everyone this question. Have you ever found yourself in a tough spot not knowing what to do? One evening this past December, I received a time-sensitive email from our bookkeeping firm 
asking for some important year-end information. The date was December 27th to be exact because I remember thinking this is a Katie Hyman issue and Katie, as many of you know, is our Director of Administration and Communication. However, it just so happened that Katie was on vacation that week, so I did what any sensible leader would do. I took matters into my own hands. So I jumped in my truck and headed up to this space, our church space. The information I told was easy to find and located in one of our church's filing cabinets. So I came here, I unlocked the door, turned off the alarm, and sourced the answer. I found the information, simple enough, problem solved. However, I noticed something else that evening. I noticed that Amazon had dropped a package at our building's front door. So being the responsible human being that I am, I went and picked up the package, and lo and behold, it wasn't for us. It was intended for one of our neighboring tenants. And that's when I said, I'm not just going to be a good human. I'm going to be a good neighbor tonight. And with an air of holy arrogance, I know that's an oxymoron. Nonetheless, I jumped into the elevator and I went to the third floor of our building. I delivered the package to the door of the tenant for which it was intended. Now, I need to stop here and share two important data points from our story. First, I delivered that package that night and I did it in the dark because I thought to myself, why waste energy? Why turn on any lights in our building? Additionally, it was the week after Christmas and this was significant because it meant, to my knowledge, no one else would be working in our building that week. Thus, the building was not only dark, it was quiet and would remain quiet for several more days. Now, returning to my story, this is where it gets rather good or bad, depending on your perspective. After dropping off the package, I headed back to the elevator, and only once when I reached the elevator did I discover a small yet significant problem. Every time I pressed the elevator button, it flashed red. Every single time. Every time I went to press for the elevator, there was this red light flashing at me as if it was angry at me. And no matter what I tried, I could not get the elevator to open or work. So friends, I was stuck. I was completely stuck. If you've ever been in our building, I was stuck in a bad way or in a bad place. I was stuck on that open air ledge above our lobby. And here's a picture of what I was facing, only I took this picture in the light of day. See, that night I was stuck in a dark building where people wouldn't come for days with no way out and no way down. Oh, and, and did I mention that I forgot my phone in my truck that night? <laughs> so I sat there in the darkness and considered my options. Option A, I could wait for Carly, my wife, to discover me missing and hope she would come up to our church space. Option B, I could try to wave down a police officer through the little window up there. If they, he or she, came by and patrol like they sometimes do. Option C, I could 
try to somehow slide down the tin roof that hangs above our lobby. I thought of that. Or option D, I could scream for mama like I did the first time I rode Expedition Everest at Animal Kingdom. So what did I do? Serious as a heart attack, I quietly prayed and I looked up. And friends, what did I discover when I looked up? A thick rope hanging from the rafters. You cannot make this stuff up. I saw a thick rope hanging from the rafters, and then it was looped on the railing in front of the elevator. So taking this as a sign from above, here's what I did next. I took the rope, I tested it, I then tied it to the rail, I created multiple knots as footholds along the length of it, and then I went all Bear grills at 142 Sportsman Island Drive on December 27th. I prayed and I climbed down that heavenly rope to safety. It was surreal, right? Here's a picture of the rope after I descended. Now, for those who are really into this story, you can even see some of my toe prints on the paint in the lobby below the rail, for I was thoughtful enough to remove my shoes that night and I didn't want to scuff up the wall. I know, it's all crazy, and I lived it. (laughs) This did happen, and it was quite the moment and quite the story. So one fellowship, it turns out I'm not Mr. Responsible. Here's why. I should have known to have taken a key fob to use with the elevator that night. I had known that protocol after hours for years. It probably also would have been important Wise to turn on some lights so I wouldn't be mistaken as robber. And also, it's sometimes helpful to carry a phone, right? Have you ever heard that saying, pride comes before the fall? Yeah, I know that saying. Still, I'm grateful for the experience and what happened because it reminded me of a childlike but valuable lesson. When faced with a tough challenge, we don't need to look down. We need to look up. Allow me to repeat our opening question. In life, have you ever found yourself in a tough spot not knowing what to do? It could be relational. It could be existential. It could be spiritual in nature. Have you ever found yourself stuck or perhaps confronted by the limitations in you or even around you? Today in our passage, that is exactly what we will see in the life of Jacob's family. Facing famine in their land and bankruptcy in their souls, the brothers of Joseph come face to face with their own limitations and are given a choice. Look down or look up. And what do they choose? Well, let's explore that together. This leads me to our big idea, or perhaps I should say our big invitation from Genesis 42 today. When chaos and convictions come your way, don't look down, look up, and grab hold of God's grace. When chaos and convictions come your way, don't look down, look up, and grab hold of God's grace. And we're going to slice this into three different points. Point one, chaos will come our way. Point two, convictions will come our way. And point three, grab hold of God's grace. So here we go. Point one, chaos will come our way. It'll come your way. Our passage begins when Jacob learned that there was 
grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at each other? Listen, he went on, I've heard there's grain in Egypt. So go down there and buy some for us so that we'll live and not die. And so 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he thought something might happen to him. Friends, in life, we must understand that chaos will come our way. Diving right into our passage, note the very first thing Jacob says to his sons. Did you catch it? Why do you keep looking at each other? In the face of difficulty, here a multi-year famine, this is not the most encouraging or affectionate statement, is it? Jacob doesn't say, how are you? How are your families doing? What do you think we should do about this thing, this famine? No, Jacob, the father and grandfather, simply says, Why do you keep looking at each other? Friends, right out of the gate, we're meant to see the brokenness and the bluntness of this man and of this family. Specifically, we're meant to ask, were these sons of Jacob, who were by this point middle-aged in their lives, were they incompetent, not knowing how to problem-solve on behalf of their families? Or were these sons of Jacob simply lazy, not willing to problem-solve on behalf of their families. We're not told which. We're just told that there was tension, a lack of action, and an apparent lack of trust in this key family of the Bible. Do something, the old man basically said to his sons. The family is in trouble. Oh, how chaos can come our way, right? in all different forms in life. It can come through this choice or that choice, his choice or her choice, this group or that group, and it comes and it comes and it comes. Categorically, you might say that there's personal chaos, societal chaos, and legacy chaos. Just to unpack this for a minute, listen, if you come from an evangelical background, you've probably been taught that chaos comes from within you or within us, as we're all agents of sin and totally depraved, meaning everything we say or do is marred by sin. Ever heard that before? That thinking, that theology? How about this? Parents, do you buy that? Do you see it? Is little Johnny perfect and pure, or might he even at a young age be Tainted. Friends, have you ever noticed how little Johnny is oh so sweet until he's not? Johnny, can you share that toy? Can you share that book? Can you share that little blankie? How does Johnny tend to respond? No, it is mine. You see it young. Friends, there's personal chaos in our world in that it stems or flows even from each person. Meanwhile, some of us have grown up in more liberal or activist settings, right? Perhaps in your upbringing, you were taught that the main problems in life are societal or circumstantial in nature. It's this group or that group. It's this policy or that policy. It's this barrier or that barrier. Thus, for you, most of life's problems 
are seeing as being around us rather than in us, right? Fix this, and we'll fix the world. Consequently, you may be bent towards justice or mercy or social change. Listen, if this, you, this, if this is you and this is your background, you've got an audience with me. Because all we need to do here in Charleston is drive across the nearest body of water and see the haves and the haves-nots, right? The circumstances into which we are born can offer massive advantages or disadvantages. To this point, we may see, say that there's societal chaos. Does that make sense? And lastly, I know some of you like to look at life through a psychosocial familial lens, right? Everything, including the chaos you see and the experience you bring, has a relational history rooted in a family history. Paul, I've, I've learned this by hearing, seeing, and doing this. Or Paul, I've played this role as a child. So I repeat or seek these patterns or these people as an adult. Listen, I get it. I can relate. When I was in grad school studying attachment theory and family systems theory, they blew my mind. And if this is you, and it probably describes a lot of us, you're probably someone who longs for healing and the change in certain patterns in your life, right? Including how you or we relate to God. And to this point, we, we might say we all deal with legacy chaos. So why do I share these things? Well, I share them because for Jacob and his sons, in our passage today, all these forms of chaos were present. Look at this with me. First, there was legacy chaos. As you might recall from several weeks ago, as we launched this series on Joseph, Jacob, the father, and the grandfather here, but the father of Joseph and these brothers was sinful. He was a broken man. In fact, as the grandson of Abraham, Scripture tells us, ready for it? He was a liar and a manipulator. He actually stole his brother Esau's birthright and blessing. We read about this in Genesis 25 through 27. We also read that Jacob deceived and stole from his father-in-law Laban. Furthermore, Scripture tells us that Jacob was a poor decision-maker and father. He chose four wives, which created toxicity in the family, and he played favorites, which is never a good idea. And this is all aired out in the middle chapters of Genesis. Thus, as I shared several weeks ago, Jacob was not the kind of guy you'd likely trust, be it as a family member or even as a father. He was a liar, manipulator, poor decision-maker, and faulty dad. He brought legacy into the mix. We need to see this. But Scripture says not all the chaos was Jacob's fault. No, Joseph and the boys, they generated their own chaos. To quote one theologian, listen, quick summary. Joseph's brothers were a miserable lot. Sons two and three, Simeon and Levi, were guilty of premeditated genocide in the slaughter of the unsuspected shit. Sheshemites, excuse me. The number one brother, Reuben, had committed incest with his father's concubine in an attempt to secure ascendancy over his father, Jacob. Next, all the 10 brothers, they did what? They took a young Joseph, stripped him, beat him, threw him into a pit with frat, excuse me, with frat recital intent, which was only averted by a passing caravan where they sold him into slavery. And then son number four did what? Judah did what? He impregnated his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Remember that? 
who had disguised herself as a Canaanite prostitute. It's all pretty gory, but real. Thus, the brothers generated their own personal chaos. And Joseph himself did the same thing. Joseph thought at one point in his early life it'd be a good idea to play the tattletale on his brother. He also thought it'd be a good idea to tell his brothers about dreams he had, that one day he would rule over them. Thus, Joseph and his brothers contributed to the chaos through personal chaos. We need to see that. And lastly, we get to our passage. We're meant to see the societal chaos. Beginning in Genesis 41, we read that there's a famine that had swept through the whole earth. People were starving, families were starving, whole nations were starving, and it must have been oh so awful. Thus, chaos by this point in the story of Joseph was everywhere. We're meant to see the legacy chaos, the personal chaos, and the societal chaos. And if we're thoughtful people, we're meant to ask, where is God? Where is God in all this? And if we're thoughtful people, we can't help but ask, what are they and what are we to do about the chaos? What are, we, what are we to do about the chaos around us and in us? Listen, when we step back and ask ourselves, how do I reconcile what happened to me as a kid? You ever done that? When we look in the mirror and ask, why did I say those words or make that poor choice again? You ever done that? Or when we watch the news and soberly ask, what is this world coming to? And what can I possibly do about it? Friends, chaos will come our way. Some of you know this all too well. You're living in it right now. What would God have us do? Would he have us dismiss it or ignore it, all the chaos? He would not. God would have us address it head on. And this leads us to point two. Convictions will come our way. Stay with me, friends. The sons of Israel, picking up at verse 5, the sons of Israel were among those who came to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Joseph was in charge of the country. He sold grain to all its people. His brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. And when Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke harshly to them. Where did you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan to buy food, they replied. And Joseph recognized his brothers, yet they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You've come to see the weakness of the land. We'll stop there. 20 years. 20 years. It had been 20 years since Joseph had seen his brothers. Just imagine this. And it'd be 20 years since his brothers had seen him. The last time they were together, the brothers had stripped him, beaten him, and thrown him into a pit. From there, they had decided to sell this younger brother into slavery. I cannot imagine the flood of emotions that would have come Joseph's way when he saw his brothers for the first time since their horrific betrayal. It must have been oh so hard on him. And still they, the brothers don't recognize him. 
It had been 20 years. And if you recall, when Joseph was rescued from prison by Pharaoh to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, he had been cleaned, shaven, and given fine clothes. So contextually, in our passage, the brothers likely would have had long beards, and Joseph likely would have had none. Kind of interesting. Furthermore, there is absolutely no way that these brothers could have imagined that their younger brother Joseph, whom they had sold into slavery, could have somehow survived slavery and ascended to be Pharaoh's right-hand guy. It would have been impossible for them to believe. But what does Jesus tell us later about dealing with the impossible? With God, all things are possible. And that proved true here. Right here in our passage, we see the brutal brothers coming on behalf of their broken family, bowing to their betrayed brother and begging for bread. We see the impossible. And here's the point. Whoever you are, don't you ever discount the power and providence of God in your life or over your family's life. Don't you do it. If God can redeem Joseph's family this way, Paul, Sharon, he can redeem your family and my family in any way. The question is, do we believe that? That God can redeem you, whoever you are and wherever you are, in your family today. But first, God must do something. God must deal with us just as we are and deal with our sin and our chaos and bring us through the crucible of conviction. And that's what we see in the rest of Genesis 42. Multiple times in our passage, Joseph, acting on behalf of God, then tests his brothers. He first accuses them of spying, of course, to which they deny that, and they beg him for mercy, and then he throws them into a pit or jail. And it's quite the poetic twist. If we have any lit majors here, Jonathan Hyatt, it's quite the poetic twist in the writing and in the story, because if you remember from Genesis 37, Joseph's brothers had accused Joseph of spying. He had begged them for mercy, and then he had been thrown into a pit. And yet what's more, Joseph had been sold into slavery and was thought to be dead by his siblings. So would Joseph, we're meant to ask, treat them in the same manner, or would God call him to treat them differently? So Joseph tests his brothers again and again and again to see if they'll acknowledge their sin and turn from the rampant self-centeredness. And friends, what do we see in Genesis 42 and on, breakthrough. We see breakthrough, catch this, not only in the life of the brothers, but in the life of Joseph. And this leads us to our third point. Grab hold of God's grace. Whoever you are and wherever you are today, grab hold of God's grace. Passage concludes, then they said to each other, obviously we are being punished for what we did to our brothers. We saw his deep distress when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. 
And that's why this trouble has come to us. But Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to harm the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must account for his blood. And they did not recognize or realize that Joseph understood them since there was an interpreter between them. He turned away from them and did what? He wept. Finally and powerfully in the story of Joseph, there's breakthrough. The brothers, without their awareness that Joseph could understand them, acknowledged their sin before one another. There's holy conviction here, like the first light breaking through the dawn of day. The Apostle Paul would later write these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 about such breakthrough. Listen to this, as translated in the message. Distress that drives us to God does that. It turns us around. It gets us back in the way of salvation. We never regret that kind of pain, but those who let distress drive them away from God are full of regrets, end up on a deathbed of regrets. And these brothers were being driven back to God. They were in pain because of their choices in life, and they knew they needed forgiveness of life, excuse me, in life. And then there's Joseph. And he's taking it all in. He'd been abused, betrayed, and sold into slavery. Yet through it all, mysteriously, God had been with him. God had shown him favor, and God had shown him kindness, as we've looked at over the last few weeks. And I'm sure Joseph, in his flesh, wanted to punish the brothers, wanted to make them pay for what they've done. Yet his position in life and his dreams in life told him to do otherwise told him to redeem his brothers. So what would he do? Would he give the brothers what they deserve, which was death? Or would he give his brothers what they absolutely don't deserve, which is life? And his tears provide us his answer. Quote, they did not realize that Joseph understood them. Since there was an interpreter there between them, he turned away from them and he wept. He wept. He wept for them. Joseph extended. He offered his brothers grace. Now bringing this into our modern day, on the evening of June 17th, 2015, a young white supremacist filled with hate and rage entered Mother Emanuel Church in downtown Charleston, determined to take African-American lives. After being welcomed into the church by its pastor and members of various ages, the young man stood. After participating in the evening's Bible study, he pulled out a 45 caliber handgun, shouted multiple racial slurs, and killed nine innocent people. Included in the dead was Myra Thompson, who had been leading the Bible study for the first time, the very first time that night, and who was also the wife of the Reverend Anthony Thompson. The horror of that evening shook not only our city, but our world. You remember it? Just two days later, Reverend Thompson, with other family members of the deceased, would face his wife's killer, Dylan Roof, at the young man's bond hearing. 
And as reported by the Post and Courier, Thompson hadn't planned on speaking that day. But when the judge asked for the family of Myra Thompson, a voice told him to get up. It was the same voice Thompson had heard at age seven that had called him to preach. Thomas recognized, Thompson recognized it as the voice of God. I said, son, I forgive you, Thompson said, reflecting on the moment. My family forgives you. We would like you to take this opportunity to repent. And almost immediately, Thompson said he felt a sense of peace. The kind of peace he equates to what the Bible describes as the peace that surpasses all understanding. It was as if the anger Thompson had been harboring immediately left him. My body began to shake, he said. I was light as a feather. It was as if I could float in that room. And I've got that same peace today, Thompson would say. It's allowed me to move forward. And just like that, Thompson forgave the man who gunned down his wife and his friends. He was able to move forward and to grieve and to give and to serve. And God has used Reverend Thompson to touch countless lives with his testimony. Similarly, through his tears and his actions, which we'll examine in the coming weeks, Joseph was also able to forgive He was able to forgive his brothers. He was able to move forward and allow his family to move forward, not by looking down, but by looking up and grabbing a hold of God's grace. Joseph's actions, his forgiveness, his extension of God's unwarranted kindness and favor would change the course of history. You see, friends, grace changes everything. Grace confronts the unspeakable, forgives the unforgivable, and loves the unlovable. And the Bible says that we're all offered that grace today. This is not about denial, but deliverance. It's about the deliverance from the chaos within us and the chaos around us. And we all need God's grace. And God knows the world needs his grace. And it must find its home in you. And it must find its home in me. To end our message this time, I believe there are two applications for us today. First, we must own our chaos and convictions. Friends, where we have strayed, we need to confess it. Where we have harmed others, we need to repent of it. We need to seek to make amends whenever or wherever it is possible. And friends, where we have buried years of pain and not dealt honestly with our own story, we must cry out to God for his forgiveness and grace. And this leads us to our second application Grab it. Grab hold of it. Grab hold of God's grace. Ultimately, God's grace is offered to all of us in Jesus Christ. Romans 5 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, God doesn't wait for you and me to get life right. 
through the sacrificial death of his son, he made things right. And he wants to make things right in your life today. The question is, will you and will I and will we let him? Moreover, if you're here and harboring any unforgiveness, Scripture invites you to drop the gavel and fall at the foot of the cross. Fall at the foot of our Lord. Join Reverend Thompson there. Join Joseph there. Join many who have gone before us there. No power and no person other than the Lord are meant to occupy the ultimate place in your heart. There's not only love and grace, there's freedom for you in grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. The Lord hath promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. When chaos and convictions come your way, Madison, don't look down, look up and grab hold of God's grace. Join me in grabbing hold of God's grace, whatever you're facing today. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this raw but transformative story, this scripture, this invitation to come to you, to look up to you. God, would you search us and know us and see if there are any offensive ways in us and may we bring them to you. Would you forgive us and love us right where we are? For any in here who just have never trusted or need to trust the Lord again and grab that grace, I just invite you to Repeat after me, God, I confess my sins. I acknowledge your lordship in my life. And I grab hold of your grace. I trust in you above all things. In Jesus' name, amen.